Hello and welcome to the Marketing Mashup Podcast. This podcast is where we bring you the most interesting perspectives on marketing from some of the best minds in the industry. In this series, we've got agency directors, startup founders, and some of the people who are away in these trenches delivering the marketing campaigns. We might also grab some perspectives from people outside of the marketing, so let's mash it up. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Martin Mashup podcast. I've got a really, really interesting guest with me today. It's Jack Mayer. Now, Jack Mayer is the marketing director for System One App Ratings. Coming from humble beginnings, working for his dad's business in Wigan, Jack has always been looking to hustle his way to success with immense entrepreneurial spirit, passion, and drive to grow. Having managed the site as his dad's business, Jack was ready for another challenge, moving to London to pursue a career in marketing. Now at System One Ab Ratings, he has undertaken an MBA as well as his other passion projects, which we're going to dive into a little bit in this episode. Jack, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thanks, James. You almost make me sound impressive. That's all right. <laughs> That's something. <laughs> so we've got a few things to go over today. Mm-hmm. Um, our pizza are going to arrive shortly, which will... Great stuff. That was your idea, by the way, because people listening will be thinking that that's my idea. So today, as I said in the intro, we're going to sort of talk a little bit about you, where you started, how you got to where you are now, a little bit of what you're doing at Ab Ratings. You're also doing the MBA, which is a mad thing to do along with a full-time job, wouldn't you think? Are there people that do the MBA like without a job? Just like Yeah, the full-time MBA students, yeah. it's. Mm, I think the majority of people do it that way. But there is a lot of people who do an executive MBA part-time. Well, it is absolutely mad then that you're doing a, a full-time job along with your MBA. Is that, do yeah. you find that hard to... I was going to say shout out to the class of ni- uh, 2019 at, at <laughs> Surrey. Um, it, is, it is tough and it takes its toll in different ways on different people, I guess. I think the one thing that I've sort of realised is that it's got ramifications for your life, not just professionally, but in, you know all your spare time. Like You think you're prepared to do something of that magnitude, but when you actually settle into it, you just don't realise the amount of hours that it takes to get to necessary to get the work done. Mm-hmm. It, but it's fantastic. Like I absolutely love the cohort. Learned so much. Like the faculty are really, really good, really stimulating, and like everything tends to be pretty current. So I feel like it's not a bit drab and old school, mm. old kind of style business school stuff. So it's really interesting. I'm really, really glad that I did it. It's a pizza. Pe- Hello. <laughs> Yeah, that pieces. Don't cut this. All right, lovely. I'll come out. Just bear with me. I'll come and get them. Okay. Cheers. Bye bye. Oh, this is great. That was great time, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. Yeah. No, stop you mid So you know, you're good. You're good. I'm just getting stuck in. You don't mind? Yeah. Me. I right. So we've just finished our pizzas. Those were absolutely delicious. How was your pizza, Jack? Enjoy that. Lovely, jubbly, thank you. Yeah. Would you recommend anyone else who wants to come on the podcast to come on the podcast just for the pizza? I would, yes. And <laughs> I get the meat special as well. Delicious, right. <laughs> so I, I wanted to sort of talk a little bit about your backstory, where you've got to where you are now, where you started out, because it's it's a really interesting story. So let's th- start off. Do you think so? I, I, I like it. I like <laughs> it. And I'll, I'll jump in if I've got any questions. Right. Okay. And we could end up spending quite a long time in here. But okay. I love hearing about people's stories and where they got to where they are. 
I'm from a town called Chorley. Um, Chorley. It's... I don't know. It's quite famous, infamous um, from like Peter Kay sketches at the end of Peter Kay yeah. shows. It says Chorley FM coming in your ears, and everybody thinks that's like some kind of joke radio station that ex- mm-hmm. actually exists, and that was actually the tagline, Chorley FM coming in your ears. I don't know who came <laughs> up with that. Someone um, hilarious. Yeah. So I'm from Chorley originally. Um, always had a passion in the background in sort of starting my own business based on like sort of my family background. So. We've had a sawmill, a timber merchants in the family. Uh, we can trace back until the 1800s. Um, and past that, we can't get any further records. So for as, since records began in our area, there's always been a sawmill in the Mayer family. And that's what the family business is. They still work in timber. And my dad harbored ambitions for me to join the group and work with him. But me being me and being a bit stubborn and a bit more... Um, I don't know, open-minded, should we say. I didn't really want to sell wood for the rest of my life. <laughs> I just thought, I'm going to get out of it. So I went to university um, at Lancaster, um, studied entrepreneurship. Hub, like I said, Harvard. Studied I'm entrepreneurship? Yeah. That's is, a thing to study. That's, that's, yeah, that's uh, quite... Well, actually, there's a growing school of thought that entrepreneurship as, as a skill set is very worthwhile teaching. But if you're asking me, are entrepreneurs made or nurtured? I think it's somewhere in between. Um, but hmm. neither hither nor dither. Lancaster was great. It's a really good university. It's a little bit out of the way. Um, it's not exactly Manchester or London. Um, and I think one regret that I have from my time at Lancaster is that I, th- want, I wish I studied abroad. I wish I did a bit of time mm. travelling somewhere. Where would you have gone if you studied abroad? Probably the States or North yeah. America. Canada would have been lovely. Um, or p- potentially just throw yourself into somewhere in Europe. Um, but I think genuinely, like since I graduated from university... I sound like an old timer now. I think like the world's got a smaller place. It's much more common to go to. What, what's your thoughts on going and studying in a really like rogue country like China or Is China Japan? Rogue? The rogue yeah, from yeah. A, a, a European sense because it's just oh, it's so a bit off the beaten track. Isn't oh, it? It, well, it's like with the, with the growth of China, with everything going on there. Just they, they say like if you're going to learn a language, learn Mandarin. Have you tried? I've absolutely tried. Absolutely not. It's no. very, very difficult. I can imagine. I tried it for about a month and I could just say, my name is Jack. And that was like, <laughs> that was like two, two classes a week for like but, three weeks. But can you imagine if you had that experience of going to one of these countries that is is not the usual usual place for, for a student So what's my go? view on it? I think, I think go for it. I think now, I don't want to say it's more prominent and more common, but at the time, so I graduated in 2012, at the time, people were studying abroad, but they were mainly studying abroad in English-speaking countries, mm. um, and it tended to be the States. Um, but I do... It's, look, it has got much more common, and I know quite a few people who've gone off to Scandinavia, gone off to Central Europe, and gone to Asia, although very few people that I know have done yeah. Asia, um, studying there. But now, like, I mean, everybody travels to Asia. I'm not, not, I don't mean to sound like it's rude or anything like that, but it's a bit of a cliche, like, you've, you've done travelling in Asia, like, everybody has. Except me, I guess. And have you been to Asia? I've not been to Asia now, which is bad. But um, I think it's quite a common place to go traveling. And I think because of that, and because more people are doing this like en masse, I think a lot more people are studying in far flung places. I'd love to. Like I wish it, that I did. Well, uh, on a massive tangent here that's completely unrelated. What's We've your already thoughts? Started. <laughs> oh, this, this is, <laughs> will we get to point two? Yeah, I, I'm bad <laughs> for this as hour. well. What's your thoughts on nomads and digital nomads and? guys that start a business and they will just they will take their laptop they'll go to bali or thailand and they'll just run their business from there because that is something that is really really appealing yeah no, and i, I just love the thought your of your skill set as well yeah 
Um, I think it's fantastic, and I think that it's again. I don't. I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I think it's a lot more do. It's a lot more doable and a lot more. Oh no, yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. And you've seen there's like there's a lot more social proof that it works. Like there are blogs that you can follow, there are podcasts that you can listen to with people working from. I I follow one called Follow the Hound on Instagram, and it's just them like traveling South America. They've done Asia, and it's it's a phenomenal like one to follow. They sort of like blog on it as well, and they both work. It's a couple, and they both work remotely. Um, and freelancing again, it's just much more common. But my, you got to remember where I came from, right? So I, when I first went to IBM, I was amazed that, that you could make a living off just working off a computer. That's how caveman I was. That's I was like blown away. Um, but it depends a lot on your skill set, doesn't it? I think if you've got, um, there are certain industries where freelancing is much more commonplace. So I want to say editing creatives i think can do it a little bit easier um people who like design graphic designers etc yeah Um, there's a huge contingent of like web designers and graphic designers and Mm -hmm. developers out there and i i think that it's just something i'd love to do and love to explore but i think the workplace is also uh, mirroring that because they recognize i think most forward-thinking organizations recognize the power from working from home like and 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 their ability to work remotely so i've got a huge stat view on that and i feel very passionately about working remotely um i i saw a stat on twitter so i'll just find it but you're completely right the the mentality is changing as well Mm -hmm. people which is for the best and i think it's potentially our generation that's pushing it well maybe your generation is pushing it more than mine but i think over the past five to six years it's grown exponentially. How and much do you get done when you work from home? Oh, good days and bad days. Yeah. If, no, no, if my boss is listening, I, I get loads done. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I, I don't know. Good days and bad days. When you've got something to focus on, I think it, for me, working from home works better when I've got a, um, a singular task that I need to focus on for mm-hmm. the day. And I can have that sort of focus where I can switch the out of office on, really zoom into something and get my head into it. Um, I think... It's good to tackle big tasks when working from home. But if you've got a million little things and lots of calls, um, it's not always the best. I, I think for if you're going to work from home effectively, you need a separate space to be able to do that. Do you have a separate space? Or a you very a, small separate space. Or you a sofa, chill, no, I'm not a sofa. Netflix I in the I background. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, no, um, no Red Dead or anything like that. I've got <laughs> like I've got I've got a desk in my room, but I think that you're right. And ideally, it would be like a home office. Yeah, no, yeah, I've, space helps. Have you seen on Instagram my um, my setup that I've got set up? I have seen your it's lovely the, the lighting, the, the lights, the the monitor. I. I've I've always had like a desk set up in my room. So mm-hmm. go on, you're gonna ask a question. No, I'm just gonna say it looks a little bit like a rave for those who've not checked it out yet. It's I mean, it glows different colours. I think it flashes. Follow me on Instagram <laughs> at Jay McKinvin and shout out, <laughs> and you, you'll be able to see um, these single ladies set up. <laughs> Got flashing lights on my desk. <laughs> but yeah, so I I think like having a natural space. I find I get a lot more work done when mm-hmm. I'm working from home. You're right. There's good days, there's bad days, but if I put my headphones on, I've got no distractions. Yeah. I talk to so many people when I'm at work. I just get distracted by everything. Yeah. I did find find that stat I was just looking for okay. um, about Shoot. about remote working. And the guy that founded Product Hunt, you heard of Product Hunt? I have heard of Product Hunt, yes. And the guy who founded it, Ryan Hoover, said, let's say you're looking for a new job. What's the most important thing to you? And he, got, he put four um, answers to this poll. 
infinite vac- vacation time is American. Ability to work <laughs> remotely, paid lunch and dinner, and a retirement plan. And 68% of people said the ability to re- work remotely was most important to them when looking for a new job. Mm. And if that amount of people, when they're looking for a new job, so you've got this massive pool of talent, and yeah. 70% of those are going, I want to be able to work remotely. How can companies ignore this? Yeah. Especially your your bigger corporations where yeah. it's not really something they do. Mm-hmm. And just all, all the talent want to be able to work at home, work remotely, because it's just... Even since I moved to London, which is about four or five years ago now, I've noticed a shift. Um, probably, I couldn't tell you, I couldn't put my finger on exactly what's caused it, but I think smaller agencies, um, other workplaces that are just sort of pinching some of the best staff uh, have sort of pulled, it's like a pull effect on the larger organizations to just be like, to keep up, they have to do it now. Like you said, it's like, I think it's a hygiene factor these days. If a mm. place doesn't offer uh, working remotely, most people would, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I don't even, I wouldn't even say it's a perk anymore. I think it's like a fundamental. I, I completely agree. It's not a perk. And if any business ever puts in their job description that under the perk section of working from home, that's, you probably want to avoid them <laughs> or it's ask pretty, why they think it's a perk. I think. Yeah. But yeah, no, I definitely think it's expected these days, but I th- it all comes down to, I think, the culture of the workplace. The, like, there's like a trend, which is all leading to greater autonomy. So you have a role, but you look after... A, a, they want you to run your role as if it's like a mini business or empower you to do good work. So to work on things that you want to work on. That's like commonplace in part of a... Um, feedback or review session these days but it wasn't when i was starting out five years ago i think there's been quite a few seismic shifts which don't seem that great because they've sort of happened incrementally but if you look back now people are working much more on the things that they want to work on the projects that they want to work on the clients that they want to work with which with much greater freedom and it's for the best like it really is and that's probably a big reason why i love my job right now yeah, interesting. So let's let's loop back Is round. <laughs> let's loop back round to you studying entrepreneurship at Lancaster. Yeah. Um. What, what do you take away from an entrepreneurship degree? I mean, <laughs> that's a really good like, question. Uh, pe- people, are hate me. Pe- people who are in who are in sick form right now are probably thinking, oh, that's exactly what I want to do. Instead of doing actual entrepreneurship, I'm going to go to uni, traditional uni, Beans and up. study it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, what did I learn? I think I got a lot from um the innovation. Uh, side of things so looking at, like at the product development cycle that was quite interesting sort of going through the stages new venture creation where you essentially mock a business startup also oh, so they're not just saying right go on to shopify read their case studies about drop shipping s- s- sign up to as many um Which you should look into <laughs> if you're looking for passive income by the way yeah true L- look into all these courses from from anyone you see on Facebook <laughs> and start following their models. So it, it was a little bit more structured. It's a little bit, well, to be honest with you, I think what, what I'm getting at um, or what I'm alluding to really is that the most that I got out of university was when we did the practical stuff. And I think that that's a reflection of the way that I work. Great to study the origins of entrepreneurship and Schumpeter and creative destruction cycles, etc. But really, is that going to help you create a successful business is that going to help you in later life to a certain extent not as much as emulating what creating a business was like and it was only in the final year that i really got a lot of the value but i think 
also, I did a placement year. Coming back, you take it a lot more seriously. The first couple of years, it's almost like, yeah, university. Where did you do your placement? IBM in London. Oh, that, that's all right. But, <laughs> it, but, how strange, but how strange is that, though? I studied entrepreneurship, and then I went and did a placement year at IBM, probably the most bureaucratic um, tech company around. Did you not think that when you were... I thought, let's see what it's like on the <laughs> other side of the coin. Um, let's just see what it's like. And how did they react when, when they asked what course you were studying? They're like, on entrepreneurship. I remember the and interview, actually. <laughs> I was I like, oh, God, this is embarrassing. When he interviewed me, bless him, I can't remember his name, but he was really, really senior and really switched on. He was like a partner. IBM make, take great pride in the fact that they make a great effort with like literally all levels of hiring from interns right the way through to partners, yeah. etc. And I got interviewed by two partners on the day, which is pretty good for like an internship. They, they hire two hundred. They did hire 260, 300 people a year. So there's a lot of people to get through because you've got to obviously filter it down to that number. So the applicant levels were in, in the high thousands Also, I remember. And he looked at it and he's like, entrepreneurship, like why us? And by the way, you've also got three typos in this. No way. <laughs> I did. I no had typos way. In it. Three typos. Did know, you try to explain them? Like, I yeah, think, no, that that one. That one. Yeah, I, I just said I, I sent this in a rush because I realised the deadline was like imminent or whatever. But he, well, I'm sure they found that I impressive. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I tried. Well, I talked him round, so I got I got the gig. Uh, anyway, um, he, yeah, he found it quite funny actually, but I likened it to running a small practice in IBM and I think he was like okay entrepreneurship I get the bridge I was like you can't you can't criticize entrepreneurship when you're an organization that prides itself on innovation quote unquote <laughs> um but like you know like Watson and the the what the, what IBM are very good at doing is scaling innovations into uh, a viable business model and they've been doing that like they're, they're, I think they're the first curator of a computer so they've got a long 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 history of it and I think I spoke to the the history and the prestige of IBM. Did a did a little bit of um, and um, yeah, got me in. But IBM was brilliant. But I worked in public sector for the first six months. Well, I worked in public sector for the remain like the whole time. But I was a consultant for the first six months. I say a consultant as an intern. There's not a lot of consulting. <laughs> an an intern done. consultant. There's a lot of bitch jobs to be frank. But it was it was really interesting. I worked on something called Southwest One, which was um, a joint venture between IBM and like Avon Somerset Police, Somerset County Council and Taunton Dean Borough Council. They made like a joint organisation, basically outsourced all their IT, um, the delivery of like um, call centres and things like that and they brought it all under one cloud. Um, and I, I'm not going to say anything that is um, <laughs> critical, but it, it, it if you look look it up online, it didn't work out. And when you were there, it was very evident why. So that was quite interesting to be inside a huge bureaucratic organization, your public sector and private sector, two worlds colliding. Being part of that was quite interesting, quite eye-opening. And then the second six months was working in like quite um, senior uh, pitch um, sales team, basically. So when they would go out and bid, bid for large public sector work, um, and I worked on a few big bids, which was quite interesting. Because the first side of like professional consultative selling think it opens your eyes a little bit like you think of these guys as like wholly intimidating how can you go and sell a 300 mount 300 million pound computer system to the government actually the people behind it aren't as, as intimidating and it's not as sophisticated as what you might think but ibm was fantastic i loved it um i just knew it wasn't for me i didn't like the bureaucracy i didn't want to work for a huge 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 organization um and feel like i was a number and i think a lot of people yeah 
when speaking to people, it was a very, very linear career trajectory. You've got to be happy doing the job. You've got to be happy doing the grind, working away from home, doing projects that you don't necessarily believe in or you know aren't on track or and you've just not got that much autonomy. And they pro- I imagine their culture's shifted quite a lot because they've had to, but what we were talking about before in terms of feeling empowered in your role, um, working for an organisation like that at that time, you didn't really get that sense. Yeah. So y- Sorry, going around the houses here. That's all right. Do, do you think that university is worth it? Now, this is uh, a conversation I have with a lot yeah. of people because yeah. I didn't go to uni. I, I did an apprenticeship instead. For me, it's worked out much better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that uni is sort of outdated in sort of the way it teaches Mm -hmm. especially in 2019 if you've got kids coming out of school with the right attitude and like a willingness to learn i 100 percent think they should get stuck in in the actual workplace and learning real skills instead of going to uni and learning old school teaching it's absolutely not fundamental to go to university i've encountered many people many people who are more impressive to me uh, in terms of their work ethic their drive they're just, you call it hustle, don't you? That's your... Hustle, yeah. Hustle is your, is your thing. Um, just just in general, like, university's definitely not the be-all and end-all. And I think that it, if I was looking at things now and um, my grades at sixth form didn't sort of stack up to go to a great university or do, you know, and I'd also be looking at the price of a, a course these days. When I was there, it was... 3,400, 3,500 um, each year. Now tuition fees are like nine and a half. I think they can rise up to 12. I'd be doing a serious like, is it worth 60 grand's worth of debt to do? And I'd say probably not. Um, but every like different strokes for different folks, right? So, and I know it's sort of a cop out and sitting on the fence, but if you've got the drive and you know what you want to do, the biggest advantage in life, in my opinion, from leaving high school to getting where you want to be, to getting rich or to being successful in the industry that you, you, you that you crave to be in. If you really want it enough and you know you want it and you pursue it single-mindedly with absolute drive and passion, just go into it, just do it, just start. Um, and you can start, like, you can start at any level. I know, I know there's, like, the thing about being an intern, you need experience, and I believe it's difficult to make the first step into a, uh, into certain professions. You know, you know, if you want to be a solicitor, you're not going to do that by just being an intern. And there's, there's certain things you do need yeah, that, that level of education for. But I, I think sometimes if you're not sure what you want to do, mm-hmm. going to uni isn't necessarily... Well, I, I'm anti-uni, so I'm going to be very biased. Yeah. But I, I don't feel that that is a good good enough reason to get in yourself into that debt. Because if you do a course in something, then you end up not liking it. Mm-hmm. What have you actually gained from those three years apart from learning loads of drinking games and <laughs> the best best student nights in yeah <laughs> in no malaria. i see where you're coming from but like 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 i'll go back to there are a lot of people in my view who haven't got a concrete vision of where they want to be and i was a bit like that at university i didn't really know what what profession i wanted to go in i knew i knew that i wanted to start my own thing i knew that i had a passion for i don't know digital should we say digital services SaaS platforms as they're known now but at the time it was in sort of its advent and I found that really really interesting if I hadn't gone to university I don't think I'd have had the clarity of mind I wouldn't have been exposed to a lot of experiences such I wouldn't have gotten I wouldn't have got in at IBM I wouldn't have got in at like where I ended up post-university and it helped sort of sculpt 
what I thought I wanted to do. I think university is probably best either, A, if you know exactly where you need to be and and a um, degree is going to help you get there in that ch- that chosen area. And the other is it, it for a, a journey of self-discovery. Um, mm. And I don't think there's much in between from what I've seen. You just mentioned what about doing a degree that you don't like, what you get at the end of it. A lot of people do a degree, start in liking it, and then sort of feel a bit pigeonholed to continue it after the second year because they're, they're already on the journey and realize it's not what they want to do. And they use it to um, sort of step across. And that's okay. Um, I think because I've gone around the houses in my career so far to get to where I am today and I've landed somewhere that I'm really happy mm. and really, really enthused with what I'm doing and I believe in what I'm doing and I, I'm optimistic about my future um, and my career. But I, sometimes it takes a while to get there. Like, I think there'll be a lot of people who'll be very envious of the fact that, uh, you know, from 18, 19, you sort of knew what you wanted to do. And I think that's the biggest leg up in life. I don't think it's about a degree. It's like, Honestly, as soon as possible, my only career advice to someone is find out what you love. And as cliche as it is, once you know what it is, just push and push and push in that direction. 100%. Agreed. Because you, you, we were just discussing off air. Um, off air, God, I'm getting into it. Off air. Off air. <laughs> um, we, we were just discussing um, working part-time and passive income. And James has like got hobbies, which will eventually lead to other things. And he was saying that I, d- I don't understand how people uh, just go home and, and just chill out and they don't want to do anything else and they don't have that kind of passion. But I said to James that essentially it doesn't feel like work to you because that's your passion and that's what exactly what, what you enjoy doing the most. And that's that's where you know you're on the right direction for your career when you're doing something like that and you get out of bed in the morning and every day you're like, can't wait to sort that out. I can't wait to get into work and finish that piece of work off or I can't wait to create something today in this given thing. Um, the sooner you get there, the better. And I think there's a lot of people out there who are still discovering it. I just say to people, try and find it as soon as possible. And if you're not sure about it, try something else. I agree. And I, I also think that if there if there's something that you love and you're passionate about and you know you're passionate about it, Think of ways you can monetize it because if mm. you can start monetizing something you hustle. love, hustle, hustle, <laughs> hustle towards your passions, right? Mm. And if you start making money out of it and you're careful with the way you're making money, you don't want to do it too much because you'll fall out of love with it. But if, if you can start making money out of it, then not only are you doing what you love, you're making, you're making a, a good income. And as you say, you're waking up and you're excited to do what you want to do. Yeah. And that's going to make you happy and... I, yeah, I completely agree. My 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 one thing that I'd add to that is that um, don't be concerned if you're not making money off it straight away because I think Agreed. a lot of a lot of people start off doing things that they want to do. What's that guy called who interviews chicken chicken shops in London? Chicken connoisseur. Yeah, yeah. Like he was just going around doing a YouTube vlog uh-huh. about chicken, and that's Peng, and I thought <laughs> it's so good, it's Peng. hilarious. And now he's getting paid mad money to feature on certain ads and. In a nutshell, find out what you want to do and just start doing it. And, and eventually, and you'll the, find a way to make a career out of the, it. The, the point you make about not expecting money straight away is really important because if you, if you go into something, don't go into something because you think you can make money out of it mm-hmm. because that won't lead to any happiness. That'll just frustrate you. It's the wrong go, moral, wrong go motive. Go f- first by doing stuff that you enjoy. So, for instance, I love making videos. I love making YouTube videos. I'm publishing as many as I can. I'm lucky if I get 
50 people watching those but sometimes i get 20,000 people watching them and that's great that's a great feeling mm, pretty but at the end of the day if i'm making videos as often as i can i'm feeling great that i'm being productive i'm making these videos mm-hmm. i'm improving my video my video production skills and then i'm clicking upload and i'm doing something daily mm-hmm. that, that's making me feel good i'm not making any money out of it mm-hmm. but that, that's not the point it's it's teaching me to to build that habit and to do something i love even if it's if it's sometimes quite difficult, and that, and that's impressive, and a lot like for me, so sort of looping it back, I'm gonna try and do the tangent back into the, the original <laughs> question. Post university, I after leaving Lancaster as a uh, studying entrepreneurship, I I went to Boston and I was um, a football coach, a soccer coach for <laughs> twelve months, and it was and that was my hobby. I absolutely loved football. I loved coaching, and I wanted to go over to the states at that time. It might have been related. To to other motives as well but um <laughs> it was it was a really good experience and i got a lot out of it and that's a lifestyle job you can't coach football unless you're in love with football and i realized that i was in love with football but i didn't want to do it i i didn't want to monetize it i wanted football to be i wanted that to be a hobby and i only found that out after nine months of doing it i also think that is a very important thing mm-hmm. because after you monetize your hobby it then might not stay a hobby because yeah, you're making money out of it that is in your job mm-hmm. if you're if you're making enough to live off it mm-hmm. that is in your job so you've got to be prepared that if you're going to start making money out of your passions or your hobbies you might it, i'm not saying you're going to fall out of love with it but it might take some of that away so just being prepared mm-hmm. for it mm-hmm. what i love is that I, I love the whole journey of it the process getting up and wanting to do something that mm-hmm. that that makes me successful and that that that's what I enjoy. That that is my hobby, really. Mm-hmm. I've got other things like football. I love football. I love following it. I'm not interested in making Charlton any money FC. out of it. Charlton Athletic till you die. Uh huh. <laughs> um, I'm I'm not interested in making any money out of that because it will just it, it won't. Yeah, you want it happy. to be a pure hobby. Yeah. So I'll keep going. So um, I went over to the states. I was a football coach for 12 months, working for a company called Global Premier Soccer. I realized it wasn't for me and I realized it wasn't where my passion lied and where I was going to create my own thing. Um, and I came back to the UK and I worked for my dad for mm, nigh on 18 to two, 18 months to two years. And that's when I, I ran the Manchester Depot for the group for my, for my dad. Um, well, not for my dad, for me and Northwest Timber Treatments. Um, for all, all your DIY, give them a try. Shout out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was, that was, that was great to have an experience of sort of, managing a business um with tutelage from a couple of really really um strong characters and i think that that's sort of shaped who i am and and my strengths etc like i i'm not good at a lot of things in life i'm really not but i like to think that um i'm quite authentic um and i'm a bit of a people person i can get on dip, dip, you know different wavelengths with different people and i can really empathize with people and 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 help them get what they want out of certain relationships you just pulled out two of the most important marketing principles for me and that's authenticity and empathy empathy yeah if you can have those two in marketing Mm -hmm. it is absolutely huge because a lot of marketing does not contain either of those Mm -hmm. it's completely fake you're you're flat out lying in Mm -hmm. some marketing Mm -hmm. um and you, you don't have empathy for your buyer or yeah. customer. I think that's spot on. Empathy is like the the key word for me as well. Like because I think as a consultant or if you work in sales or in marketing as well. So all three of those I've got experience with, but if you've not got that general level of empathy, 
it comes across. People can tell immediately. You can't feign empathy. If, if you're in a room with people and you are going there to sell, to consult, um, to help them progress something that's theirs and you're, you're the hired help, I think it really comes across if you're disingenuous. I think people have radar for it. They switch off to it now. Yeah. There, there is so much noise, so much content, so much marketing. With people making, so many options. With people making content for, for entertainment now and marketing mm-hmm. on social media and everywhere else, yeah. people absolutely switch off to bullshit content. Yeah. They do. And so if you're making stuff that... Uh, <laughs> God. That might potentially be considered bullshit it's gonna be it's gonna (laughs) by the way it's gonna be completely cut off from yeah you you just got everyone now has a filter for it where Mm. they'll just Mm. they'll just scroll past it yeah they're not interested no it's very true if you're not engaging with people um people won't engage back and i think that that was like a really good grassroots thing for me to go back and sort of reteach myself sort of my heritage where i came from and um working like with lads who work on construction sites they can they can tell bs a mile off so you have you had to get on that level you had to be sound as i as i say quite a bit of that's the mank terminology <laughs> coming out there but and and then i came down here and i felt like a, a lot of a rough diamond because i had so when i first came down i had three interviews two were at partner level i think one was like i don't know if it was at partner level but essentially three at final round one was Deloitte, one was KPMG, and the other one was a consulting house, but it was boutiques. I couldn't even remember the name of them. I just remember KPMG and Deloitte were, were partner interviews. <laughs> I'm laughing because I remember like a really bad interview that I did with with Deloitte, and I'm, <laughs> I'm absolutely gutted that I did this. But um, we got given a piece of paper. You, you were told that you could have one piece of paper to present your key findings on, and it was like a 10-minute presentation, right. so whatever. And... Um, and it, I was like, okay, I've got my key points. I've met the brief. How can I go above and beyond the brief? So I'd practiced origami, right? Oh, no. I know. It was the worst idea ever. I don't know what the, uh, I don't know what the fuck I was thinking. Origami. Yeah, yeah. Like, so I got told I could leave a piece of paper with them. And so I'd learned this origami thing. So the whole way through this interview, I'm like, shit, right? At the end, I've got to fold this into like some kind of giraffe or llama or whatever, whatever it was. <laughs> And um, he's interviewing me and he's like, what the fuck is this guy doing? Because I didn't tell him I was going to do it. So I just pulled a piece of paper out. Do you remember what origami you did? It was, I think it was, it was, I think it was a horse and it was meant to symbolize (laughs) something. And I was like, this symbolizes this and it's relevant because this. And at the time I thought I was 21, no, 23, 24. Again, I thought it was bulletproof. I'm folding a paper airplane because I've forgotten how to do the llama. But at the time I was like, this is, fucking bulletproof he's gonna love this he's gonna be like wow this guy's so memorable and so uh cliche you know not cliche so um memorable and <laughs> out of the box and quirky or whatever and he was just he looked at me like i had four heads when i left <laughs> and i gave him this piece of paper folded up origami with like my key points on it and i was like and the the, the symbol for whatever in such country is a horse did, did presenting have- this horse <laughs> and he was just like who the fuck are you? Get out! <laughs> and um, and uh, at the time I was like, yeah, that could have gone two ways. Um, and I still thought like I was still like eager to hear the phone call, but uh, absolutely no. But I ended up at Millwood Brown. I ended up in market research, and this is how I fell into the industry of market research. I think I know like of all the people that I've come across, and it's in the hundreds now in market research. I'd say people that I've met, 
working at organizations from a client side, working for agencies, working as freelancers, etc. I think I've only met like two who were meant to be market researchers. Everybody else just just like, oh, I'm I'm in market research. Mm. I was I didn't plan this, but I'm here now. And um I think it goes back to what I said before, like everybody's got a different path and then people might not want to be in market research long term. And we've had a, a you know, I've been in organizations where there's been a lot of attrition, a lot of people have left and to pursue things that they're they're interested in and market research was a um like a stopgap in their career kind of thing because he sort of fell into it. And I fell into it, if I'm being completely open and honest. Uh, but Moore Brown was a fantastic school uh, to learn market research. Like they're really well-respected brand and advertising research agency worked with some phenomenal clients like really 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 big mm. and i got a lot of autonomy to sort of manage the relationship and i found that the research was okay um and but what i really where i really got my kicks was answering like questions so if a client was like we don't know whether to run this ad um this year or we should remake another one or like we don't know if you should push budget behind this or we should sponsor this program and helping them with like actual real problems i.e consulting rather than compiling data formulating the reports what's the story that never really appealed to me it was more how can i really help the people that i was working with a couple of years on from that um i moved on and essentially ended up at brain juicer which is now system one and like it's just the perfect fit for me in terms of um the people there what what was your job role when you first joined? I was I was like essentially a senior research associate, then became a research consultant. So just working with number of clients, helping solve the it might be they want to launch new products and they're testing alternatives. They might be testing packaging. They want to see where their brand is versus other brands. They want to look at their advertising versus a competitive set and how they can improve. What was the real time effects of their advertising, etc.? It's just general brand and comms and new product development, market research. But it was it's honestly the culture when I joined Brain Juicer was the best I've ever encountered anywhere, bar none, and it will take some beating in, the, in my future. Um, and now it's pretty darn good. It's getting it's like I think all agencies go through a period of sort of. Uh, peaks and troughs with people etc yeah. and when people start to get negative and, and um, fall out of love with the job they can impact the people around them and it's not necessarily they're doing it might be from a, um, things that uh, are done unto them but we've got a really we've got a really happy ship at system one and um, I really like the people that I work with and the job that I'm working in now I think is much more interesting than just solely research so I did love working with clients but I um participate in the marketing and the commercial i.e. sales of a new product which we just launched which is pretty exciting I, it sounds like I'm going to flog it I'm not I'm not going to flog it but I love my job and I really believe in what we're doing awesome so t- tell me a little bit more about system one what you do and then a little bit more about ad ratings and what that is for the product system one um, are like Brain Juicer was known for being quite cookie, quite innovative, but definitely the organization or the research agency that you'd use if you want to capture... So it's a research agency. Research agency. that If you want to capture um, the emotions and the irrational side of the brain, which um, by and large, if you read Daniel Kahneman, thinking fast and thinking slow, the system one part of your brain, i.e. what the company's named after, is, there you go, is the... Um, 
is the irrational side, but it's it's where your brain does most of the thinking. So when I went into the shop tonight and I picked up Coors Light, it was just what I've drank before, what did I like, how did I feel about it? Yeah, it's quite good when it's cold. It's an online database of, of all the ads tested in the UK and US. Well, I say all, pretty much almost all ads over the past 18 months to two years. Um, they're all on there and they're uploaded within 24 to 48 hours, like as a rule of thumb. And essentially, those ads are tested with a, a group of people using our market re- research methodologies at System 1 to capture feeling, to capture initial reaction, to capture brand recognition, etc. And this dashboard gives you access to your ads and your competitor ads for a stat, like a really, really low price. So yeah. typically, if you were a company, I don't know, let's just pick any, like if you were Ford, right? You're an automotive brand. You produce six ads a year for your different models. You probably do various re-edits of those across Europe, whatever. Ad ratings, when you're looking at it from a UK perspective, will show you all of Ford's ads and all of your competitor ads within automotive for a grand a month, when really they're usually paying for a pretest upwards of like three, four, five grand. And like right the way up to like the top spec of like a, an ad test is like 40 grand. Yeah. So for 12 grand a year, you get all the performance of your ads versus your competitors. Now you don't get mountains of extra data with it, but you get the top line figures. You get like, how do people react to it emotionally? Um, what's the, like, you know, what are the short-term sales effects? What are the long-term sales effects? Like we've had like validation and accreditation from the IPA. So in essence, our stuff works. We do it at scale. And we do it much cheaper than competitors and people can just subscribe um, for 12 months and they can see all of their respective categories. Mm-hmm. So if you pay a grand a month, you would see... I don't know. You might see confectionery and, and sweet goods. You might see automotive. You might see whatever whatever your category is. And you can see, like, for 12 grand, that's very, very cheap. And um, I'm, I've am i been part of the product development, and it's uh, been quite a journey over the past six to nine months. Um, initially started, like, doing a job share, so I was doing that, like, part-time. That was a lot of hustle. And now we've, we've launched it, and we're basically refining the product, and we're essentially in the process of finding the perfect product market fit in terms of what people love about it and making enhancing that and and that's the challenge at the moment getting all of the early feedback and actually making this into the product that at its core it can be but actually realizing a product's potential is a lot more difficult than it sounds you can have a vision about mm-hmm. what a product's going to be but you put it out there and like everybody else might use it in a different way or view it in a different way and only when it's out there can you actually see what that is and like being part of that journey, I'm essentially an, an entrepreneur right now. We're launching something completely new we've never done before. Different business model, uh, different ways of working, loads of different tools and systems and, and, and you know external help to get, to get us there. And they've done a tremendous job. The whole team in development have done a tremendous job. The organizations that we've worked with, um, it, it's it's been really, really, really cool to be part of that. And I think... For me, I'm wanting to start something for myself in the future. This has been probably the most relevant, pertinent experience um, that I could have had, and that's why I love my job right now. I'm I'm intrigued. Um, in in your role, yeah. What would you say the the biggest challenges you have? Because I I feel that sometimes in marketing we're we're very sort of obsessed with the numbers. What 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 are your KPIs? Yeah. 
how many MQLs are you getting? Mm-hmm. For you, how important are those numbers, those KPIs versus like the actual... MQLs, f- marketing qualified leads. Yeah. Yeah. It's difficult. Things need... Pe- as, as a human race, we like to measure things. Mm-hmm. Um, we like to assess where we are against a given plan. We like to compare with pe- previous time periods and rate of progress and anticipated targets. Um and I don't think that's going to go away. And I think that's why market research exists. So I can't shit on it too much because it's what what you know gives me a living. Um, but do I find it difficult? Yes. Do I think that it's got a place in the world and it's important? Yes, because there are an awful lot of people, particularly when you go to higher up in organizations, and I've been exposed to this and I've seen it in SMEs, in medium-sized organizations, in consulting organizations, in you know, large consumer brands where people go off gut feel. And in a C-suite level, that happens a lot more than what it probably should do. And I think it's better to go with evidence. It's like the advent of the internet and digital, and without meaning to go down the rabbit hole of this, like behavior is much easier to quantify and to understand and to therefore take action on. Um, You know, gone are the days of mad men where, you know, people will put out advertising that they thought would sell and that they thought was controversial. And and now you need sort of social proofing. Even when, even as a consumer, social proofing is powerful. Um, 95 people booked this flight um, in the past 24 hours. There are four spaces available. That gives you um, a sense of scarcity and makes you want to act. Um, Basically, numbers and data are like, is encroached into our lives to such uh, such a level that it's it's impossible for it to go away, and nor should it go away because fact is better than somebody's opinion. Um, so it's a it's it's I can see why some people would find it like monotonous and it could get in the way of their work. KPIs, for example, when poorly designed, are the most destructive for anybody's work. I firmly believe. But if you've got them in place in the right kind of areas and you're all on board with the strategy or how you're going to get to where whatever your objective is and the KPIs are realistic and they, you know, they are accurate. So like there's a, the data that you're getting is reliable and it's going to get you to where you need to go. Then you should have KPIs. And that's why uh, most absolutely. people are like, uh, KPIs are, are important. I feel like it's a bit of a loaded board. question because I know where you're coming from. I know where you're coming from and I felt like it was a bit of a loaded question um, because data does have a place in things like you work in so your passion is video editing video software and production how do you know with with the public if something's popular it has to be views it has to be drop off rates but you, you absolutely cannot um, it, 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 don't it, be ruled by KPIs you, That's you, not you can't be you can't look at the views of a video and decide that that has been impactful. What if your video gets um, 3 million views and you get two sales? Whereas you could do a video that gets 100 views, but it gets 10 sales. But you're if you're judging it on views, you're saying, oh, well, this video went viral, so it's far more. A good example would be Logan Paul and the Suicide Forest, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that like probably had the spike in views that he'd had for like the last six to twelve months. So Logan Paul is a YouTube personality, um, flogs a lot of his own gear, doesn't he? Um, made it famous by basically being the king of Vine um, before Twitter cancelled and deleted that um, application. And um, he's known for making lots of funny videos and, Rest and in vlogs. Peace, Vine. 
Rest in peace, bad. And he went over to, we should probably know the name of this forest in, in Japan. And it's like, um, the, it's not affectionately known as, but like, it's commonly known as suicide forest. And basically he recorded somebody um, who'd committed suicide. And he his view viewership spiked, but he also got a tremendous amount of backlash. And at the time, like, he probably sold a lot of merchandise. He probably got a lot of advertising, but only after an absolute shitstorm. Yeah, shitstorm and barrage of um, like, how could he film someone who's committed suicide? How invasive is that? How like capitalist for him to? Because he like at the beginning of the video, he's like, "Oh, I'm not going to make any money from this video. I'm going to donate it all to charity." But at the end of the day, he still promoted himself. He still promoted his brand in this video where he's walking around a forest and like filming people who've committed suicide. So. Yeah, numbers can be wrong, basically. Like, just because he got a tremendous amount of views and he didn't get a lot of drop-off and probably the best exposure he's had in years, that's not good. He made a massive fuck-up there. Um, how do we get onto this from KPIs? Numbers uh, numbers can be misleading, but do I believe in KPIs? Do I believe in monitoring things? I do. But I, I, I think you do need to monitor, monitor things and... There's, there's a no, place for it in marketing, there's, right? There's, there's no point of you doing your work if you can't see how it's performing. But I think that sometimes there's a little bit too much reliance on it. Yeah. Especially with people get so, so bogged down with their leads, MQLs, SQLs, yeah. and their funnel. When in reality, that a lot of the marketing they're doing, they need to focus on how am I building my brand, mm-hmm. my brand tone, mm-hmm. helping my customers. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, we all know that word of mouth is far more powerful than any marketing you can do and do you have a stat to back that up do i not off the top of my head no, no. neither do i yeah but we we know that's Great the case question. because because if if someone tells you to to go and try a product yeah you, you're gonna go oh okay well that's that's someone i know mm-hmm. who's referred me to this product yeah. or service whereas if you see an ad on twitter or or, or a pre-roll ad on youtube you're going to skip that or go past it if it doesn't capture your interest. Devil's advocate. Go on. Reviews. Yeah, right. So the perfect example. So reviews are so powerful now to the point where every hotel comparison site that you look at will probably present the assessed audited rating of a hotel. Four to five, you know, whatever star. I've said four to five. I'm trying to anchor it, make it look like I'm posh. Not really. <laughs> and then they've got the they've got the um, the actual user review, the people who've been there reviews, and they put them side by side these days. It used to be just the yeah. the hotel, and now it's side by side. And to the point now where usually, if they're only displaying one, they'll display the user review. And we've all heard of the shed at Dulwich, right? I think, oh, we, lo- I think, I think I we love this story. Don't I we? love the shed at Dulwich story. I'll, I'll make sure I put that in the show notes. Um, yeah, T- TLDR essentially a guy um, got himself to the top of TripAdvisor in um, London, in in, in London. By making a fake restaurant and getting fake reviews, oh god, it's so good. It's like, like an eight-minute little docu- mockumentary. The, the, it's fucking I, brilliant. I, I read the article first, but then I watched the documentary, and it is absolutely fantastic. Can you remember what the, he served? So he, he so he created a <laughs> he created a false restaurant. He didn't create a restaurant. He pretended it, that he it, created it wasn't a restaurant. A restaurant. It got yeah. to the top of TripAdvisor with never without ever serving any customers. Yeah, it's ever. genius. It's genius, and it was all like he used to write fake reviews for people, didn't he? Mm. And um, it like sort of snowballed. Um, so he was writing reviews. Other people were writing reviews. Everyone was trying to go to this restaurant that didn't exist. And then he did like he actually opened one night, didn't he? 
and he did like yeah at the end so it was microwave lasagna was one <laughs> it was like absolutely ridiculous meals and everyone was like oh it's so good you can tell why it's reviewed so highly and like he put someone in his shed someone in his garden and someone on the roof of the shed no it, it was it was all in the garden it was all in the garden no, one, in, one was on the roof and of his one was on shed. the roof yeah. yeah oh it's genius so that's how misleading reviews can be. And that's me saying that, yes, word of mouth is very important and difficult to quantify, but reviews is the internet's equivalent of word of mouth. So if you're a company founder or CMO and you have you have 100 grand to spend on a campaign or you have 100 grand to spend... Interesting. Do you invest that into marketing... Or do you invest that in the holes you have in your product? I'm going to go 80-20 uh, product and then marketing. Okay, I'll, I'll accept that. Yeah, and I think you, you, you need to perfect what you, your craft and what you're doing and make sure that it's appealing and make sure that it's right. But then it's about promoting the, the or celebrating the fantastic experiences that people have had with your brand or product. And there are a lot of, a lot of organizations have, Innocent is a great example, right? So they started off uh, going to festivals, just making juices with like bullets and um, food, pro- food processors yeah, and yeah. stuff. And then with a little bit of a push of their brand, they started to get real traction. And for example, for like a, like pop-ups so common these days, like you could be here today, gone tomorrow, but like you're only going to grow into something bigger if you talk about it really, because you've not you're not giving yourself opportunity to scale but i I think that goes goes against some of the more traditional market well some of the more traditional digital marketing methods of putting a shitload of money behind paid paid advertising paid social adwords instead of actually focusing on your product and what's what your it, it depends on your product itself as well, right? So what's the likely, like, how reliant is your um, product and service on repeat purchase? If it's a big ticket item, you, you, it might not be great now, but it might be great by the time that I keep using it um, as, as an online service. I'm trying to think of an example. So Spotify, didn't they didn't get it right straight away, but over time... That experience with Spotify was a lot less frustrating. I thought, you know what? One or two ads for all this free music is absolutely fantastic. And actually, I am sod it. I'm going to move away from iTunes and my yeah. whole library because it is a really, really good experience. But it's not the same for everything. Um, I think it re- depends on the, the likelihood of repeat purchase. Um, if you're relying on repeat purchase, it absolutely matters. Monthly subscriptions, for example, that you uh, delight from the word go. But it's not as important for other products i guess so you specifically are referring to a b2c product there where i feel that um yeah it was actually wasn't it so what would you say more in b2b because obviously that that's where we work um if you're a b2b company and you're trying to decide what you need to focus on in terms of your marketing your marketing spend do you like take a step back and think, right, I need to focus on my product instead of your marketing? Because these are big ticket products yep. that are being sold and you can spend uh, a load of money on marketing and just be and one anybody, sale. And anybody who understands B2B knows it's much more difficult to market in B2B because to get the right audience of buyers, the people that make the decisions on the products that you're creating, products and services, it's very difficult to target them. And that's why so many people go down the route of digital because you need to target. Um in that instance, 
and it's not dissimilar from the situation that we found ourselves in over the past few months on ad ratings at system one you've got to perfect the product you've got to perfect your pitch you've got to perfect your position and how you meet uh needs basically meet needs is like a, a very very generic term but in essence what what value are you bringing to your customers and clients lives and if if you you haven't maximized that yet or you haven't re you haven't really capitalized on what that can be you're not truly adding value to their lives your product is fundamentally doomed to fail um doesn't matter how much you spend behind it so your core product proposition has got to be well researched and at least initially executed um in terms of the mvp if you're way off from that that's why so many organizations i think fold from the, the stuff that i've looked at pretty much over the course of my mba um but you've really got to perfect your products otherwise you, and you've got to perfect your product market fit otherwise you, you're sort of doomed to fail and i think a lot of organizations rush to scale rush to advertise rush to we need to get those numbers in without sort of perfecting what they're offering i feel like is this dry I no feel no like this no, is dry. no it's, it's it's important to cover and especially in a marketing focused podcast I, I feel that these are the sort of things we need to touch on because that there, there are a lot of people that are sort of in the same position as as we're talking about here that they've they they haven't quite perfected their product but they yeah. ne- they need the leads they need the leads to start growing yeah sure but where do they focus their efforts on where do they focus their their budget um so for, for you as system one mm-hmm. and ad ratings yes yeah. Where are you focusing your efforts on? Are you trying to make that that product the best thing you possibly can, or are you trying to build yeah. up your word of mouth, or just spending a load of budget on? Yeah. So a case a case study for looking at System One and where we are right now. We are only a couple of months on from launching our first true iteration of a product where commercially people can and can purchase, um, and we're still in the in the process of perfecting the product now. There's still product um, development going on, and I still think that. In terms of what we we intended it to be, it's getting close to what we intended it to be, but it's still not exactly what we wanted it to be at launch. And I think a lot of people do that. It's not uncommon for organisations to create something um, and get it out the door and start to get that feedback. It's almost been like a beta test, if you will, uh, in terms of capturing what people say and what people feel towards your product and service. Um, and I think you need to go through that cycle. Um, because a lot of products, so the first thing is, so if you're if you're asking me for advice and in terms of what I've learned from it, don't hold on to it for too long, even when you know it's not ready, because you need the feedback. Agreed. And you need, not only do you need the feedback, but th- there's a reluctance when you're creating a product or service or something that's going to go to a market that it has to be perfect before it goes out. That's nigh on impossible. You need to make sure that you're going in the right direction and you need to make sure that your ethos is being realized in whatever it is that you're producing, be it service or product. And only when you get it out there and only when you start talking to customers who have to part with their money and not what you walk around with uh, biases and assumptions in your head, do you actually realize the where you are in the journey of your product development and where the value lies because there's so many assumptions that you inevitably have to make when you're creating a business only when it actually only when you open your shed at Dulwich only when you open your business only when you you know create your product and people start looking at it and critically analyzing it and you listen to the feedback do you actually realize 
how close to the bullseye you were. Yeah, so... Uh, Get it out there and listen. So That's my first piece of advice. Okay, so you're you're someone who's just launched your B2B product. Yeah. You've, you've made a logo. You put it on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Your LinkedIn bio is founder of X. Yeah. How do you get people to start using your product? For, from zero, how do you start getting those initial people to try it out and actually get that feedback? Do, do you have to start putting paid budget behind it and no. actually build something out? No. Or, or is it I don't worth... think you have to pay. No. Yeah. My, my view on if you're starting something out as a, a product or service, you approach... You, whenever you are creating an organization or creating a, a product... You you've definitely got a look. Maybe a bit of an MBA terminology here, but do a business model canvas. Do like a, a brief outline. Do a, a brief business plan in terms of whose needs are you catering to? Who's going to want to buy this? Who's going to want to view or interact with your product or service? And make sure that they are suitably interested. Speak to them people before you create it and during the process of creating whatever it is that, you, you, that you're on with and then post creating, put it to them and ask them what they think about it. Um, I can't emphasize enough how many people, how many organizations have thought, oh, we're creating something groundbreaking here and gradually sort of veered away from where the value lies. I'm not going to name names. That yeah, yeah. But unless you get that feedback, um, and the, the more feedback you get, the better really because it helps keep you honest. Like, you can run away with the idea in your mind in terms of where you think the value lies, but you could be completely wrong. Um, so I just keep dialogue open. I'd be speaking to people that you want to sell to. I'd be really open and transparent that where you are in the journey. And if you're passionate and if you're onto something, people will give you the time of the day and they'll mm-hmm. appreciate where you're going with it anyway because I j- maybe I'm a, an idealist, but I think people want to help people. And if you are looking to add value to their lives by creating something that caters to their needs, they're going to give you time of day. So what if you, you've, you've now reached out to those people, yeah. you've got the feedback, but you've given them that product for free because you, you need that feedback. Or, or may, maybe you're making a couple of grand of a month from it. Mm-hmm. How do you then go from those first 10 to 100 users to thousands, tens of thousands? How do you scale? Yeah, uh, is the feedback representative? So don't speak to one people, don't speak to two people, speak to as many people as you can. And don't be like, I think a fundamental thing for people who are starting their own businesses, a lot of people have hesitancy in talking about their idea because they're afraid that other people will steal it. When really, the best thing that you can do is talk to as many people as possible because no one's got the drive and energy behind your idea that you do. And the more critical feedback that you get, the sharper it's going to be by the time it matters, by the time you get in front of an investor, by the time you get in front of your first customer, your first 10 customers, your first 100 customers. The sharper it is, the more likely it is to succeed. Um, and I can't emphasize enough to talk to people. I really can't. Um, how do you scale it? Make sure what they're telling you is representative. Make sure you, what, you're, what they're saying you're listening to and make sure what they're saying you can, you can achieve. All right, guys, we're going to wrap it up there. Thank you, Jack, for coming in and spending some time with me chatting about I've everything. I've loved it, mate. We're, de- we're definitely going to have a part two to, to dive into those things. I think we're going to have another interesting conversation when we go off on lots of tangents. I hope you did enjoy this podcast. If you did, make sure you leave it a rating and a review. Again, remember... And subscribe. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast and we'll see you in the next one.
How it long did they say they were going to be for the pizza? Not that that's my priority. Like 20 minutes. 20 minutes, right. 